want to begin this new series that we're in, which is called Free to Love, which is just the next step in this book of Exodus with a story. I was in my 20s, and uh, I had a, a knew a couple. They were um, connected to my to my family. Uh, they were a young couple. They'd been married just 10 months, and they were driving in a car and actually driven off the road. They were in the back seat. They weren't wearing seat belts. It was at a time when uh, wearing seat belts, especially in the back seat, that wasn't a law. And uh, and it ended up that it was almost a near fatal accident. He was thrown from the car and it was was um, really slightly injured, uh, but she was um, thrown from the car and she ended up breaking her neck. And it became a paraplegic and is a paraplegic to this day. Uh, it was that that story, but actually that experience um, that when I was in my twenties that changed me um, in this way. I remember prior to that, kind of going, ah, you know, I'll wear a seatbelt, some restricting, not sure I want to. So I'd maybe do it from time to time. And there was a whole campaign, a promotion about, you know, buckle up for safety. And when that happened, and I heard that story, I had been at this point married just a few years to my wife, to Grace, my wife. Uh, I remember it it really impacted me. And I, I made a commitment that, um, whether it was a law or not, I was going to do that. And when it became a law, um, I encouraged other people to do it because it wasn't so much um, the law wasn't written to restrict and make it difficult for people. The purpose of that law was really to protect you. And it was um, written in such a way that it would enhance life and, and cause life to flourish. Uh, because should a tragedy like that happen, there was a greater possibility um, that you would come out of it with less injury. Well, that was something that became clear to me that the law was meant to protect. Even though it made me uncomfortable or it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do, um, it wasn't intended to really restrict or limit. It, It was intended to give life. And so as we look at these laws that are now going to, um, we're going to be seeing as we go through the book of Exodus, and we have just seen a revelation of God. They have wandered through the wilderness and God reveals himself in a, in a theophany. And, and now God gives them laws, but the laws weren't meant to restrict or limit. They were meant for a people who had been freed so that they could love, they could experience the love of God and that, that through them they could love others. And so as we look at this section, continue to remember this, that these laws were motivated by love and concern to preserve and protect life so we could flourish uh, and experience the kind of life that God has intended, which is a shalom, sense of wholeness, not only in ourselves, but with other people. And these are the laws of God. A current example of this would be um, a law like we're hearing right now, possibly in certain states, they're, they're coming out with the idea that you actually have to wear masks. And, and that isn't meant to restrict or to make it difficult for you to breathe. That's not the purpose of that law. The purpose of the law, whether you feel like you could be impacted by getting COVID and, and, and maybe make it through it, the purpose is to really protect and enhance the life of others who are less vulnerable. Uh, it's meant for life to flourish as a community. Well, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 2, the first thing I want you to notice before we even get into the law itself is, is what God says. 
It says, and God spoke all these words. And, and, and it's important to understand words. Um, the words we use say Ten Commandments. They were the ten words. And, 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 and these ten words were important for um, these people who had been freed by God so that they could love um, one another. And so these ten words, it begins by saying this, I am the Lord your God. And he reminds them, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. And that important reminder is given for this reason. Grace always precedes the law. When you look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, um, you could put it this way. Before the giving of a law, there was grace. Another way to say it is you are saved so that you can follow God. The law was not given or intended for you to follow it so you can get to heaven. You um, come into the presence of God by trust and by what he has done for us. And so there's two major um, peaks, I guess high points in the, in the book of Exodus when you study the book of Exodus. Exodus 1 through 15 um, is a story when it comes to the nine plagues. And then there's a tenth plague. And, and you're hitting a, the, the first peak with this tenth plague, the passing over of, uh, uh, of the firstborn. In a sense, God passes over their sin and he brings them through the a sea in order to birth this nation. God didn't come to the people of, of Israel and Egypt because they had been really good and they had followed the law. They didn't even have the law. God heard their cry. He saw their need, their oppression, their slavery. God comes to you in your cry for mercy and grace and he gives you it. And he does it through his son, Jesus Christ who comes and lives a perfect life and pays that price and says, trust me in the work I've done for you. And so grace always precedes the law. That second high peak is where we come now. That's what we're at. Exodus chapter 16 through verse chapter 20 is all a number of laws beginning with the 10 laws, the 10 words, which we're going to look briefly at today. The order is important, so don't forget that. First God says, then he gives the law. And that's important because in a moment we're going to take um, communion. And I want you to remember that as you take communion, um, you take it with this understanding. We are loved by God so that we can love others. We don't love others and love God hoping that God will love us. You don't get to heaven through the law. So don't get that backwards. So as um, you take a moment to get these elements of communion that... um, If you would like to be a part of taking communion as a church family, it's just, again, a reminder of this important truth that um, God, like he did with um, the people of of Israel and Egypt, God came in and showed that Pharaoh had no power. I mean, there's nothing that Pharaoh could do to hold them in, in slavery. There is nothing that Satan can do to hold you in sin. That sin has been removed through the the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He gives you his perfect life. Now, as you receive that, God sees you without sin. Um, And he now empowers you, gives you the heart to follow him. And it's really important to remember that. You may say, I I sin. Well, yeah, you do, because God's in the process of, of developing this new person within you. And so when you do sin, here's here's the reminder. The body of Christ isn't broken for you. He took the punishment. He removed the sin through his perfect life. 
in the blood of Christ, represented in the cup, is the forgiveness of that. So even now, if you are broken by your sin, I just want to remind you, um, you're, you're not accepted by God because you have followed the law. You are accepted by God because he loves you and provided a way for you to come into communion with him. So let's take this together. If you have the bread, um, please take the bread and then take the cup. And we'll just take a moment just to be quiet and reflect on what God has done for you. Father, thank you for this moment to stop. And in the word communion means that we commune with you because you have made us right with you. And you have also um, placed us in, uh, in a heart that desires to follow you and that we might be right with those around us. And so, God, may that be true. May we live in communion with you. And if we know there's things in our hearts that need to be made right with others, now we pray um, that um, our hearts would hunger to do that and be in relationship and be reconciled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So if uh, it's true, like we just said, grace precedes the law. It comes first. God saves and then he gives uh, an ex- his, his law. The next thing that's true here is the law leads to love. Moses carried down two tablets, and these two tablets can easily be divided between the first five laws and the second five laws. So if you look in uh, your Bible at Exodus 20, you'll see these five laws that are given. And um, each tablet could easily be summed up with these phrases. Here's the phrase that you could put over each tablet. The first five laws, love God. The second tablet, the next five laws, love others. The one is about authority and relationship to God, and the second one is about our relationship with others and how we live in community with others. And so um, let's just quickly review each of these laws um, and, 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 and look at it in this sense. They're not meant to restrict. They're meant to free you to truly love. They may um, feel restrictive. In fact, they're said in negatives. Only two are said positively because he's he's kind of um, putting some limits around it. And, and, and it's it's easy when he puts it in that to say, do not do this and, and make that really clear. Um, so he says the first word, no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. See, God set you free so you could be free Um, to live in his love and to express that love to others. He doesn't give this command. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. He doesn't give it because he has a huge ego and he narcissistically needs everyone to love him. You need to think of this law in this way. The reason God wants you not to prioritize money, a title, your friend, your success, your partner, your family, your health, as first and foundational in your life, The reason he doesn't want that to be first is because God knows that when push comes to shove, none of those things will be there in the midst of your brokenness. They're not worthy of the foundation to build your life on. Only God is there when the worst hits. Only God is a firm foundation when the storm hits. He's called a rock for a reason. Because all that other stuff that you might invest your heart in, 
is like shift, sifting sand, and, and it shifts. So like this couple that I told you about, when, when it came to its worst, they found God as their foundation and have continued to live with God as their foundation. The Enneagram uh, provides a, a, a good list of what I would call heart motivations. Uh, and I ask you just to pay attention in, in, in this moment um, and let the Holy Spirit uh, bring to your attention any desires that uh, lead you to put your trust or, or, or make something other than God your foundation. And another way to kind of ask it is what, what drives you to put other things first? So do you fear being wrong or bad so much so that you spend your energy trying to be perfect? Do you fear being rejected and wanted so you will do whatever it takes to be loved and valued? Do you fear being thought incompetent and worthless so you're driven to prove your worth by appearing successful? Do you fear being seen as inadequate, insignificant, and flawed so you strive to be unique, special, and authentic? Do you fear being thought incapable and ignorant so you'll do whatever it takes to be known as capable and competent? Do you fear being without support or guidance? And you often feel overwhelmed by fear, so you find yourself constantly seeking security and looking for guidance outside yourself, whether in another person or some rules. Do you fear being deprived and trapped in emotional pain? Do you fear being limited or bored or missing out on life, so you chase after experiences and opportunities, hoping they'll make you happy and fulfilled? Do you fear being weak and powerless, maybe controlled and vulnerable? So you live protecting yourself. And, and you do everything to protect those within your small circle of, um, of loved ones. Do you fear conflict and tension? Or do you fear feeling overlooked as if you don't matter? So you constantly look for inner stability and peace. You expend all kinds of energy to keep things harmonious and restful. All these fears produce drives that cause us to look to other things, other experiences, other foundations. Be really careful. We have a tendency, I think, to minimize and soften our sin by calling them mistakes. We euphemistically call having an obsession for someone's approval codependency. We call a compulsion to build a career, sometimes workaholism. We call a need to do it right perfectionism. In the Bible's word, according to this command, it's quite clear. It's idolatry. And the command doesn't soften the language. It's actually rather stark. Don't put anything, no foundation, no matter what your desires or your fears might be, Find your life in God and your foundation in him. The second word is um, no image of me. Verse 4, you shall not make an image for yourself in the form of anything in heaven above earth or on earth beneath and the waters below you shall not bow down and, and worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And this, again, isn't because God doesn't like art or he doesn't like having his picture taken. I had an aunt once who 
whenever we take pictures, she would hide. She wouldn't want her picture taken. And I was a kid at the time, and I, I just I, I didn't get it because I felt like, man, I we all see her all the time anyway. What's the deal if it's on a picture? Um, that's not what's going on with God. It's not like he doesn't want his picture taken. God doesn't want us to use anything to reflect his image because nothing can capture just how mighty and powerful and gracious and merciful and loving he is. That's why God doesn't want it. He basically says, don't put me in a box. Never limit me. Jesus said, nothing's impossible, God. Nothing. As we look at um, those things and try and, and compare them to God, he says, don't do it. There is nothing that can capture me. I remember I was in um, Mongolia with George Kenworthy a number of years ago, and we, he, he had taken me up to the border of Mongolia and it was on the top of this kind of mountain and, and it looked over all of uh, Siberia. So it was looking into Russia and it was this incredible view from, from you could go from east to west and all the way um, north and it was just unbelievable. And I remember taking pictures with a panoramic camera and I thought, oh, this will be great. And, and I, even after I got that panoramic um, picture, it, it just didn't compare to the breathlessness of that of that um, view where we stood there. I mean, that's what God's basically saying. There is nothing that can actually um, capture the incredible essence of who God is. And what's interesting, he says, um, to some degree, the best here on earth are are people, men and women, um, all races are made in his image. You and I are images of God. But here's what I want to share with you. Um, let Jesus be the true image, because there was one image that came that was, that was perfectly loving, never sinned. Just think about it. Didn't have a, um, a malicious thought ever pass over his mind. He perfectly captured Jesus. So that's what God wants us to, to that's who he wants us to look at. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Um, if you want a picture of God, look at Jesus. The third word is no misuse of my name. He says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless, who misuses his name. It's often thought of um, not swearing or using profane language, which is important. That, that could be a sermon in and of itself. I, um, God doesn't like that. It just feels so unclean. I remember I was fishing up in Canada. We kind of flew into a place, and the people who were there were leaving. He's like five guys, and one guy was the only guy speaking. He used the name of Jesus um, with the Jesus H. Christ thing, I think every other word, and it was just oppressive. So there is that sense, but here's, I think, even the deeper sense of using God's name in vain. Here's the bigger matter. It's taking and using God's name to get what you want, to use it maybe in spiritually abusive ways, kind of like God told me that we're to get married. If you ever heard anything like that, be really careful. Um, or, or God told me I need to invest this $50,000 in this new fund that this guy named Madoff has. Be really careful. 
um, using God's name selfishly to motivate people to behave in ways that you want is against this command. He wants to set you free. Don't do that. Um, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Give your good reasons for how um, you're making some of these choices. Fourth words, remember the Sabbath. Verses 8 through 11, it says, remember the Sabbath day. Now, this is one of the, the positive um, ones. He, he's talking about um, keeping it and, and, and recognizing it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do, um, shouldn't do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals even, nor any foreigner the immigrant residing in your towns. For in six days, and he gives kind of the reason here, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. So, man, if God did all that work and was so busy, and he rested on that seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath, and made it holy. I, I recognize that um, the word Sabbath doesn't mean seventh. It means cessation. It means to rest. The idea is that you are to work and to build and create and then stop. God wants you to enjoy life. He has set you free so that you can love life. He wants you to at least take time once a week where you have a, a, an amount of time where you stop, you don't do anything, but you, you enjoy what God has provided. God himself did it, and he encourages you to do it. And then the fifth word under this whole idea of love God, and it's interesting, he says, honor your father and mother, verse 12. Honor your father and mother, so that they may live long, is that you may live long in in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The idea is just as you honor God as your life giver. I mean, if you don't, if, you know, you can be as pagan and far away as God as you want. There's this sense that you know someone gave you life. Honor this God who gave you life, this authority. Um, but so also, in this sense, we're to honor our parents. That are, are, they are our physical givers of life. And you may have trouble respecting your parents because of the life they've lived. And it's not the word that's even used here. It's the word honor. Honor is something even lower than that. Um, building a culture of honor means that you recognize people in the image of God and who they are. You may not like anything else, but they're made in the image of God. And it's called to honor that. So in this sense, God um, has given your parents authority to author your life. Think about that. The idea is that you wouldn't be here without them. So there is one thing you can do, and that is to truly honor them for the fact that they provided you life. And it applies to other things in authority, and there's a lot more that can be said on this. Um, but yet that's what he's trying to do. He's building this picture and he comes down to parents and he's saying, um, even with authority, there is a sense that even with the king, um, just think about in Paul's day, him trying to um, honor these these uh, Roman emperors who were, I mean, horrible in the things they did, but yet Paul called them to honor and to pray for them. Now I want you to notice the, the next five words, and we'll move through these quickly. From, uh, from loving God, he moves to loving others. And he says in the sixth word, no murder, verse 13. The seventh word, no adultery, verse 14. The eighth word, no stealing, 
verse 15. Ninth word, no false testimony, verse 16. And then he goes into the 17th verse and he says, no covenant. And if I could, I would title these five words, um, which we've titled loving others. I I would even put maybe a a little um, tagline to it. And that is, they are community rules for dummies. I've often commented that this would fit well with the the, the Dummies book series. You know, you've heard some of the titles, things like um, Internet for Dummies or Investment for Dummies or Auto Repair for Dummies. And in fact, does anybody know, just think about it, the first book for dummies that was ever printed. Did anybody know that title? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, I see you on 106th Street in Plymouth. It's amazing what our tech guys can do right now. I see that. Yeah, you're right. It's um, if, if you look at that very first book, it was the one by um, Dan Gukin back in 1991 and was titled Docs, D-O-S, DOS for Dummies. Uh, and then soon after one came Windows for Dummies. That's how these whole dummy books started. But um, if I gave these five laws a, a, a title, it would be Community for Dummies. Because if you think about it, any healthy community that would allow for people to love and to be in good, healthy relationship with one another would have these basic rules. And things like, uh, you know, don't murder someone and, and don't cheat on your wife and cheat on someone else's wife and, and don't, um, you know, lie and don't steal and, 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 and don't covet what someone else has. And what I find is interesting, those are all actions. Jesus comes along some 1,500 years later and he takes it to another level. It's really what the last one, do not covet, does, because that gets into the heart. And because of our sin, we love to focus on the external. You know, I've never murdered anyone. I, I've never taken another person's spouse. I haven't robbed a bank or stole merchandise from a store. I've never given false testimony in, in a court of law. But Jesus moves to another level. He always drives to our heart. And he asks questions that um, make us uncomfortable. He says, in following the law and providing this kind of community, have you ever hated or despised someone? Have you ever looked with lust on someone? Have you ever stole some paper clips or robbed your employer of some of the hours that you really owe him at work? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever failed to stand up for someone? Jesus just drives to the heart. Have you ever coveted? Have you ever wanted what your coworker has? Have you ever wanted what your neighbor has? Have you ever wanted what your brother or sister have? Simply put, have you ever been discontent with what God has given you? And if you have, you've broken the law. And each law was given again, not to restrict or to limit but it was given to protect so that others wouldn't be harmed and that community could flourish. And it was given for every kind of community, whether it's the church or a business or a sports team or a family. Anytime two or three people get together, it is important that we live out these laws. The law restricts in order that love might be freely expressed because the law leads to love. And the intent of it always is that a community where people will honor one another and build this culture of honor by following rules that allow love, life will flourish. And it's pretty simple. And the last thing I just want to share with you, 
before we head into this video is the law produces humility. If you look at the intent of each of the law, it reveals our inability to create the kind of community that is um, healthy and loving. We just can't do it without God. At every level of our motivations and thoughts, whether it's hate, lust, pride, envy, um, on and on it goes. No one can fulfill the law. We're all, in a sense, broken and bankrupt before the law because no one can keep the law perfectly. Paul said, all sin and falling short of the glory of God. He quotes the Old Testament and says, no one's righteous. No, not even one. The law is like a measuring stitch, and it teaches us just how far we fall short. The real picture of God and the will of God and the law of God is seen in the heart of Jesus. And so as you read the very last few verses in this chapter, verses 18 through 26, they point to really a simple truth, and that is that genuine brokenness pleases God more than pretend spirituality. Exodus 20, verse 20 states, don't be afraid. God has come to test or to prove you so that the fear, he's, he's going to show you in, in as you follow these just how broken you really are. And that should give you a sense, a sense of awe of how much God loves you, that he would take you for as slaves bound in Egypt, set you free, and then give you this law. Not that you would, in this law, do it in order to get his acceptance, but you would know he loves you. You are his son and daughter, and when you fail, like you do with a good, and you have a good and loving father, he wants to come to you, and he wants to work in your life so that he can build into your character the very law that he's asked you to follow. Jesus, when he came, he found a whole lot of people who couldn't measure up to the law. The Pharisees tried and they, they tried to look like they did. They did all kinds of external stuff, but Jesus kept saying, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. But the people who flocked to Jesus were the people who knew their brokenness. They knew that. They were ill. They were in need. They knew that anyone who came to him were welcome because everyone's welcome in the presence of God. If you know you're not perfect, because nobody is. And when you come with that, Jesus says, I can do anything in your life through that kind of humility. And so I just want you to, to just as we kind of close on the 4th of July, it is really evident we are living in a broken community. Our nation's broken. Our world's broken. And we need God and his ability to fix it. He tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, he says in those verses that if we will just humble ourselves, he'll do incredible things. If my people who are called by my name who will, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I will heal their land and forgive them. God's God first loved us. I just encourage you to look for ways to love. Look for broken people and encourage them. You don't need a law to tell you to do that. God has promised to write the laws of love on any heart that is willing to be a humble and open canvas. And so as you live out these days, let the law, the spirit of God, um, 
cause you to step out of your comfort zone, to love courageously, possibly um, even inappropriately. Almost it looks like this if we watch this video here at the end. Just listen to your heart, step out in love, because you've been freed to love. Did you watch this? Just I, I think it's a powerful statement of um, of kind of a spontaneous act of a person who just joins in and and expresses love. God can unite us. God can create healthy community if our hearts are humble and open to do so.